Glad to all be here together, and I guess in the same spirit as last week, um, as we look at difficult conversations um, in a currently um, growing and changing and shifting um, climate here in Australia for faith and for religion, um, yeah, tonight I guess we just come in a real spirit of grace, a uh, spirit of listening um, and, and understanding different perspectives. Um, and, and also, um, I guess, here as a church as we host it, trying to discern what it looks like for each one of us um, with our own faith, our own personal relationship with God and, and looking at how to walk in that um, in a rapidly changing society um, and as well as what that looks like in our workplaces um, and in the churches that we're a part of. And so that's the heart of, of tonight. So without further ado, um, I'd like to yeah, get Keith Jobbins to come up and he'll introduce uh, Reverend Michael. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Andrew. Well, thank you, Michael, for being with us tonight. Uh, it certainly, as Andrew said, it's topical, isn't it? Uh, the Attorney General just uh, two or three weeks ago released the draft of the Religious Discrimination Act, which the government had promised they'd enact. And we're in the process now of them consolidating and encouraging people like ourselves and organisations like ourselves to be making recommendations. And so, Michael, it's uh, really great to have you here. But let's, let's first get get behind who is this Michael okay so grew up in Canberra uh, no went to Canberra to study right spent 10 happy years there met my wife and married and started life together there but uh, country kid mostly before that so mostly Bathurst uh, was home right yeah. so you were in a Baptist church in in uh, Canberra weren't you initially? Canberra and Bathurst and yeah. East Hills Baptist mm -hmm. before then yeah. but now you well and you're not you've, you're a reverend and I've fallen away coming yes. Anglican Anglican so, yes yeah but that's yeah. fine that's okay it's fairly close <laughs> just issues I, about that no, we won't I go said to those to, issues I said, said this to Keith last week I said I'm aware of the irony of an Anglican Talking to Baptists about religious freedom. It wasn't that long ago that <laughs> Anglicans were locking up Baptists. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. Because of their strange beliefs. Killed yeah. a few, but yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. Right. that's, yeah, that's true. About four, only 400 years ago. So we've, we've nearly got over it, Michael. Good. Yep, nearly. Okay. So, Michael, um, married with how many kids? Yeah, uh, four kids. Uh, oldest ones uh, doing the HSC next week or soon. I don't know. <laughs> Last week of school, next week it is. Uh, right. And uh, youngest is 11. Right. And of course, you were a rector in an Anglican church here in Sydney. Yep. Good so 20 years Anglican ministry uh, at uh, Carlingford uh, first and then um, across at uh, Roseville East. But actually before that, your study was in the area of law, wasn't yeah. it? You worked in that area in so Canberra? So that, that was Canberra. So I went yep. there to uh, study uh, law and um, uh, arts, politics degree and then worked as a lawyer in Canberra for a few years before ministry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now you're the Executive Director of uh, Freedom for Faith. Mm -hmm. um, our own connection as a Baptist movement is very strong in Freedom for Faith. Freedom for Faith established probably six years ago now, and uh, we've been a, a part of that right from the beginning, and uh, we have benefited greatly from it. Michael's been in the role now three years in that executive uh, full-time role now. It wasn't initially, was it, but it's growing. Um, yeah, uh, and, Sam, and the chair is uh, Patrick Parkinson, who yes. might be known to many of you as yeah. a uh, Baptist uh, guy who was at Thornley and is now yeah. in, in Brisbane. Yeah. yeah, yes, Patrick was a, was involved at Thornley Baptist. He was a professor of law at Sydney University, but he's now become the dean of law at Queensland University. But still a very good friend, and uh, in this space, uh, one of the people to go to. Mm. Well, Michael, we're looking forward to what you're going to share with us tonight. Do we, we want to talk just a bit about freedom of faith before that? I know we've got a, a bit of a, a video, but um, 
Yeah, just a little video, just to set a bit of context, so we could throw that up now. Okay, and good. then it's over to you. Thank you. Good, Great. thank you. Thanks. Freedom of Faith is a Christian legal think tank. What we are trying to do is build dialogue uh, with people of other faiths, people of no faith at all, about how we can live and let live in a modern multicultural society. Religion goes to the heart of my identity, who I am. I need to be free, as anybody else is free, to express their identity in their private and their public life. Religious freedom is critical for people who have faith because it's part of their identity. Religious freedom has proved to be fundamental to Western civilization. Every country in which there has been religious freedom, you will see democracy, you will see human rights protected, you will see successful economies. The countries which don't have religious freedom, they suffer on all those, those grounds. Put two and two together, religious freedom is essential to a civilized society. So that um, just sets the scene a little bit of who we are and the kind of things we're trying to do. Uh, the postcards that you uh, got or that you can get after um, give you a bit of an idea there too. Um, uh, thank you very much for having me here tonight and for coming out on a, on a blustery night. Uh, it doesn't feel that long ago that if we were talking about religious freedom and you were doing that as a night at church, that we'd be praying for North Korea or Syria or... Sudan, you'd be thinking of it in global terms. And there's certainly a really important global story about religious freedom we need to know. Uh, we live in a time where there's uh, persecution taking on, um, taking place really at a biblical kind of scale. Uh, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, uh, they uh, suffer a loss of freedom that we cannot imagine. Um, in fact, uh, I've mentioned East Hills uh, Baptist, as a little kid, uh, I remember our family heading out to the uh, resettlement camps uh, at, that were just out of East Hills, uh, where people who had come off the boats uh, from Vietnam uh, were being uh, introduced to Australian society, and they'd never seen the West before, apart from Australian and American soldiers and so on, and the church was actually quite instrumental in being that, was doing far more than um, the immigration department or whatever it was called at the time. And I remember as a kid just understanding that part of what it meant to be part of the church was to welcome these people and understanding too that these people just didn't have the same freedoms and that communism was this system that took away freedom. And we heard stories at church about people who'd smuggled Bibles into uh, China or, you know, the guards who'd walk into the uh, secret underground Russian churches and things like that. That was my history growing up, thinking about freedom. It was never something that I would have thought about here. Uh, and yet there is a story that is emerging uh, and it's, it's moved really to be front page of the papers a lot. Uh, it doesn't take um, much thought to kind of think through, you know, situations like Israel Folau, like the changes to the... Uh, marriage law, even the abortion debate and the euthanasia debate bring with them elements of religious freedom. Uh, and the context in each of those situations is different. It's not that the state is banning the church or persecuting like that. 
Instead, there's a cultural move that's taken place where faith is uh, being pushed more into a private kind of space. You know, it's fine for you to have these um, beliefs, but it's got to stay there. It can't bump up against how we live or how we do things. Um, and so that that move, which has happened um, throughout Western countries, is not one of outward kind of persecution. And we wouldn't use that language to describe what's happening really in Australia. Uh, but is instead a kind of chilling of uh, freedoms uh, that has come uh, where uh, secularism uh, has become uh, more and more kind of the dominant mindset of, of how the government wants to operate. Uh, so that they wouldn't be as comfortable now with just opening the doors to an immigration centre and saying to a church, just help these people integrate into Australian society. That's more something the government wants to hold on to, mostly. Um, uh, so a lot of things have, have uh, changed over the last few years, but there's been a bit of a, a, a kind of perfect storm of things that would make some people suspicious about uh, the place of faith and the place of the church. Uh, and so you can think of uh, things like uh, 9-11. You can think of the uh, Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse. Uh, you can think of... Um, uh, the marriage debate itself and the divisions that, that took place around that. And each one of those seemed to present opportunities for people to say uh, uh, freedom isn't something that should be given to people of faith because they'll fly planes into buildings. You know, religion is an evil and dangerous thing you need to be wary of. Um, you shouldn't give freedom to priests because look what they do to children. You know, uh, terrible evil is done uh, by people that you give any kind of freedom to. And so we need a, the state not giving freedom, but instead having um, oversight. And, you know, let me be very clear that uh, the Royal Commission is a wonderful thing and daylight on all that is a, is a good thing and there's much repentance to be had. But the effect has been one of uh, any time we're running a religious freedom argument, people say, but what about the abuse that's taken place? Um, and there's no defending the indefensible. Uh, and the marriage debate. Um, wherever you land on that in Australian culture, you know, people were, were divided. Uh, and, uh, uh, and there was a real question about what are you going to do with people, if the law changes, but people's beliefs on marriage don't change, then how do you deal with that? And at the time, uh, Turnbull, he used to be a Prime Minister in Australia. Uh, Turnbull had said, well, look, all those, all those hard questions about religious freedom implications, we'll just, we'll just put off uh, to some further inquiry so they can really just concentrate on the marriage vote. And, and when that happened, we uh, saw the law of marriage change and then the questions which came in went to the inquiry led by Philip Ruddick uh, and there was a remarkable kind of response to it. Uh, over 16,000 submissions uh, came in. Um, just a huge amount flooding in. Um, at the time, they were also running an a, a inquiry into banking. And one of the people running the Ruddick um, uh, the staff, who were kind of counting all the submissions and looking after it, said to me that um, uh, in the same time period on banking, um, they'd had about 500 
um, submissions made on banking, and that was big by any government inquiry standards. 500 submissions was huge, but 16,000 for running. Right? It was just off the charts. You know how unpopular banks are. Right? Sorry if you work in a bank, but you know, like that makes me angry enough to write a letter. But 16,000. And when you look at them, and it is public and you, you, you can look through uh, most of those um, submissions, you see that they really just divide in half. It's like half the people say, this is a massive existential threat which is facing us and people of faith in this country are going to be challenged like they never have been before. And then the other half say, this is just a complete beat up. There is nothing here to be concerned about at all. This is just people on the wrong side of history who have lost power and are just grasping after it. And so uh, this division that took place in the submissions was so striking. And really what it's saying is that um, we couldn't agree on what the problem was or whether there was a problem. And that's weird because normally when you do an inquiry for law reform, people know that there's a problem, you know, the banks. Um, the, the divisions might be about how you solve it. Um, but here, the, the difference was, is there a problem at all? You know, so we, we've got some really uh, quite uh, threshold issues uh, to kind of face. And so that, that took place <coughs> a couple of years back uh, now with Ruddick, and there, were, there was long delays about getting it released and without kind of boring you with the minutiae of what we were dragged through over the last uh, couple of years, it was a long period of delay uh, until we saw a government... Uh, response to it, flushed out in some ways by Penny Wong introducing a, a bill that would affect schools, which brought another inquiry. There's been a lot of inquiries uh, in this in this kind of space, um, and uh, and a government which said, "Well, we're going to do these things, and uh, we'll commit to to these things, and uh, if we win the election, we'll we'll do it." And much to their surprise, they won the election, uh, and so they now find themselves having to introduce. Uh, laws uh, in response, uh, which is where we're up to today. And so the bill uh, which was which has been put out by the Attorney-General, it's like a draft law um, that hasn't yet gone to Parliament. It's just gone out for comments and uh, uh, that happened uh, two weeks ago tomorrow and we've been working on it pretty much non-stop uh, since then to try and help people understand what's in that bill, what the implications are. Um, so I might just make a couple of comments about that and then um, finish as soon as I can so we're going to open up for questions which will be far more interesting. Okay, so in terms of what the, the bill does, this is a bill, a piece of law, that will um, uh, stop you discriminating against people on the basis of their religion. Okay? Uh, it is, it's very important to note, this is not a bill to do other things very limited in its scope. It's only the first, it's a welcome piece of reform, but it's only the first piece of reform. Um, there'll be other reforms down the track which look to more contentious areas like uh, discrimination on, on the grounds of sexual orientation or gender identity, exemptions that um, faith groups have, that schools have in that kind of space. That's all been pushed into next year, another inquiry, uh, another submission process that's taken place. Um, and that's not this bill. This bill is about um, saying certain acts are unlawful. You can't discriminate against people on the basis of religion. Now, you might think, well, that's obvious. We shouldn't do that. And yet, in fact, in New South Wales, that's not the law at all. New South Wales, we do have an Anti-Discrimination Act, 
It says you can't discriminate against the people against people on the basis of all sorts of things like race, uh, gender, marital status, uh, sexual orientation, all, all sorts of things are, are kind of covered. But religion isn't. Uh, that is covered in, in most other states, not South Australia, but otherwise the other states all, all say that. But here, you could say, you know what? I'm going to sack you because you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Pentecostal, right? And at law, there's just there's no recourse. There's nothing that they could do because it's not actually protected. Um, now, not having laws about things isn't always a bad thing, right? Because having laws just invites lawyers, and who wants that, right? Uh, and the more law and the more regulation you have, the more uh, you think, oh, am I tripping up against the law? And for a long time, religious freedom in Australia not been protected by laws and lawyers. In fact, compared to a lot of other countries around the world, we've had almost no legal kind of protections for religious freedom. Um, the Constitution uh, says very little. Section 116 of the Constitution says that uh, the Commonwealth can't um, uh, make... Uh, one religion, the kind of state religion, so we're not going to be England with the Church of England, uh, and that was important for the Catholics and the Baptists and the Methodists and the uh, Presbyterians and some others to sign up in 1901. So it was a kind of a political fix. Uh, they knew they'd never get the Constitution through, and the referendum wouldn't pass unless the uh, uh, unless that was there. So you can't. We're not going to have a state church, um, and you can't have tests for office. So you can't say, well, to be a high court judge, you've got to be. Um, you know, a, a Califumpian. We can't do that. Um, but it doesn't give any individual rights, unlike, the, say, the American Bill of Rights. You don't get any constitutional rights to have faith. Uh, that's not recognised at all. Um, nor are the states bound. So the states could turn around and ban Islam tomorrow if they wanted to, and there'd be nothing in the Constitution that anyone could appeal to that would stop them and nothing in their own uh, constitution uh, that would stop them either. And so the law um, uh, at a constitutional level does very little, and the, the law which is there on the books um, uh, uh, has barely been used. It's never, ever turned over a law, and it only comes up every 20 or 30 years, at very odd times, like during the war, during the Second World War, can you force Jehovah's Witnesses uh, to be part of the war effort, even though they're um, uh, opposed to it because of their faith? You know, those kind of questions come up. Or are Scientologists a, a religion, or is it basically just a tax dodge? You know, so the the High Court will look at questions like that. Can you fund um, uh, non-government schools, uh, and is that constitutional? So every twenty years, you know, you get a big question like that. But mostly, it just doesn't come up. It's just this boring little footnote in constitutional um, uh, law textbooks. Um, and the only place that religious freedom started to come up in Australian law was under the uh, Discrimination Acts. Because the Discrimination Acts were new, and they kind of start coming out in the 70s and the 80s, and they say, look, you can't discriminate against people. As Australia becomes more uh, multicultural, uh, as... Um, we have a better kind of appreciation of, of women's rights and, and different things in the culture taking place, um, we start saying you, you can't discriminate against people on the basis of marital status or on the basis of um, uh, gender or on the basis of age. And it, it kind of gets added to all the time now. Uh, but as those laws start to come in, quickly they realise, oh, hang on, if we bring in a law like this, what does that do for the 
Catholic school that says, well, our priests are going to be male and single, uh, and our teachers, we want to have a right to sack a single uh, mother who's pregnant, you know? Um, so, faced with that, even though they weren't actually lobbied, I don't think, on this point, as they make these laws, they say, well, we give an exemption to the churches so that they're not caught up with this uh, discrimination requirements. Because if we don't, then, well, the Catholic Church couldn't have a male-only priesthood because that's discrimination on the grounds of gender uh, and marital status. And we don't want to take on the Catholic Church, um, so we won't do that. So even though you might have views on whether priests should be male or female, or married or single, or whether that makes a difference, the government said, we're not going to buy into that. We'll just give them an exemption. They don't need to worry about that. And that's kind of what schools and churches and welfare agencies and charities generally across the country have been able to do. So all these contentious laws uh, at, that you've, you've seen in the news come out of that kind of framework. And the problem with that kind of framework is that it makes it look as though the, the, the religious people get this special privilege that allow, they have a right to do things which anyone else wouldn't be allowed to do. Uh, you know, it's just cover for bigotry is how it's kind of seen as its worst. And so I think in the Ruddick submission, 16,000 of them, you start seeing that confusion coming out. The people are saying, look, uh, why do they have the right to do these things which are generally wrong for the community? Um, so I, at one stage I was sitting down with a um, senior ALP figure and his staffers who were working on policy in this area. And the uh, staffer said to me, look, the churches are always slow on this stuff. They will not come to the party. They, um, they got civil rights wrong. Uh, they, um, uh, they were wrong on uh, women. Uh, and um, they're wrong on same-sex marriage. We, uh, wrong on abortion and wrong on same-sex marriage, he said. And so we're not going to wait for the church to get it right. We're going to change the laws. And this time, the church is going to have to get on board. It's pretty blunt, um, defense of social engineering, I think, really. But what what... But I said to her, look, on civil rights, actually you have the church leading that, not following. Um, uh, and when it came to things like abortion, uh, where those laws have come in and you've made something legal that was previously illegal, it's always been with a kind of conscious protection that recognises that there will be people who dissent. Um, uh, when the law came in, even on gender, non-discrimination on the grounds of gender, there's a recognition there that the church operates um, in, a, in a different kind of way and the, the Commonwealth deliberately didn't go into the church and say, you must now have male and female priests in the Catholic Church. They didn't say that. Um, but now you're wanting to do that for marriage and to say you need to change your views and to come on board with this. Um, why won't you give the same kind of conscience um, protection um, the same kind of freedoms that have uh, previously operated in these kind of areas. And for her, and for many, the answer would be it's a question of justice. We actually need to uh, see a better society brought where everybody's thinking the right things, doing the right things. Um, we know what the right things are, and you need to do them. Um, and we're not going to have exceptions and exemptions anywhere. And so... We're kind of moving from a time where 
there was kind of few laws in place, but at least the laws that were there allowed for people to land differently on contentious issues to a time where there's going to be more laws in place uh, and a lot less patience for people to have different views. Much more a sense that, you know, this is the way to, uh, to kind of behave. Um, so that, that, that's kind of the broad sweep of where we're up to at the moment. Um, in terms of the, the hot news of what's happening right now, the, the draft bill is out there. And uh, the, the important thing with it to see is that it is a draft. Uh, and as a draft, it's, it's got mistakes and problems. And over the last two weeks, we've been uh, pointing them out. And excuse me, this is not me getting emotional. It's me losing my voice. Um, and the Attorney General's office has been um, great, and and we've been uh, um, able to sit down with them. Uh, so Patrick Barkinson, who you saw in the video, and uh, I and a stack of other um, people have been able to meet with the Prime Minister, been able to meet with the Attorney General, have been able to go line by line through some of the drafting to address the concerns that we've got with the Attorney-General, with his chief uh, drafters, and the phone's been going every day um, for that conversation with the drafters to say, look, here are the issues, you know, you haven't seen this, you haven't spotted this. And um, the bill is, uh, if, it, if the draft version becomes the actual law, there are real problems in it, and I'm not sure that we would accept it um, or could say it's, it's okay, but if the problems are addressed, then uh, it, it might be a good workable kind of first start. Um, something certainly needs to happen. Um, to go just quickly to some of the issues we see in the bill, um, and because it is a draft, you, the MPs are going to be voting on this soon. So it'll go from a draft to the Liberal Party room and then to the Liberal National um, Joint Party room, where they'll agree on what they their position is, that'll go to Parliament uh, and be um, subject to a vote there. And so by the end of the year we could have this law in place with religious discrimination. Uh, and the MPs at the moment are uh, quite open uh, to um, calls and representations about it. Um, one, of the, one of the problems in the bill though is that uh, it says that you can't discriminate against people uh, on the basis of their religion. Um, and this is a little bit tricky, but what it then says is, unless you are yourself a, a church or a religious institution. Now, that makes sense, right? So if, you, if you're on the nominating committee to find the next Baptist uh, pastor here, um, when that happens, then you, you, know, you don't want to have to um, be giving equal opportunity access to people of different faiths. Right, that would make no sense. And so the law needs to allow for religious institutions to be true to their own kind of um, beliefs in the way they do th these things. And so it says, okay, well, religious institutions, you can do that. But in the way that they've said that, they've, they've, they've drawn it so narrowly that they've said really it's only uh, churches. It won't be things like aged care. It won't be things like... Um, welfare arms uh, of churches. It won't be a Baptist care. It won't be things like um, campsites. Um, it won't be things where there's a commercial aspect to what's taking place. So as I walk in here tonight and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, 
would what was the big sign out the front the center is that what it says now i think dural baptist would be covered i'm not sure that the center was now can you divide the two i can't as i walk in here tonight i I don't know, and you've got a lived history that explains it, right? You've built it from the ground up, but you've done it because of your faith. The, the reason that you've gone into this space, I take it, is because of Christian conviction. But now you've been told, well, you won't be able to operate in faith-based ways if you're out in the what they've described there as a secular marketplace. Um, that means that for Baptist care, um, or aged care for things like that you, you really lose the ability to to staff um, with uh, Christians you just can't advertise for them you can't preference them uh, you can't do anything except for very senior leadership and roles like chaplains uh, things like that that seems strange and crazy to me so that, that's one of the real uh, problems we see that kind of issue around commercial activities and um, the issue around religious institutions and the issue around what is covered, like what, what, are, what are religious activities. Uh, so the, if we go back to um, the refugee resettlement, like, you know, there's a good argument that's not actually a religious activity, although the only reason people were out there was because of their faith. You know? So um, there's some pretty basic problems uh, there in the drafting which need to be overcome um, and we, we kind of need to make um, uh, the, the loudest possible noise around that that we can which is certainly what we're aiming to do at the moment. Um, rather than drill down more <coughs> into the uh, details of the, of the bill which would be a little bit boring, uh, I, I might actually stop um, and give us a chance for questions, um, comments, stuff like that. Um, so, Keith, if you're coming up, then, um, and yeah, and I might also say, although I've talked about law, I get to that a lot of the differences, a lot of the issues which we face with religious freedom are actually um, cultural ones. So, it's more what goes on in the corporate workplace that, you know, it might not be the law that says you can't speak, but company policy is, you know, we don't do religion here. So, a lot of the restrictions on freedom have actually come... Um, not because the law says thou shalt not, uh, but because the uh, company policy does. Oh, the stool. Okay. I'm going to see it, and um, we're going to throw questions. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, there's a chance, obviously, the you see the uh, mobile number up there if you've got a question. Uh, we've had a couple, Michael, already. Uh, let me start with one, and we've all probably read about it recently, a female teacher in Ballarat. Uh, who's suing a Christian school for being dismissed for not agreeing with the school on its active stance against same-sex marriage. Uh, is, le is the legal level of freedom helpful for the church's reputation on grace? Um, okay, so is, is people heard of that case. It only arose over the weekend. And so you've got an issue there where... Uh, it, it, sorry, I need to stand to think. Excuse me if I do that. Uh, <laughs> buys me time. Uh, uh, yeah, so you've got a, you've got a teacher who allegedly was sacked. There's a question about whether she she was actually sacked or not. Um, and uh, the suggestion at the end there in the question is, um, should we go for law or should we go for grace? Well, um, we must be gracious, right? So that's the given in in um, 
uh, being Christian. I take it. It's got to be grace from first to last. And so how can you argue against that? I don't want it. I want, to, I want us to be gracious. Um, but what does that mean in terms of our, our uh, relationship to the law? Now, at law in Victoria, I think the school is well within its rights uh, to say, actually, we don't need to uh, employ people who refuse to teach the things that we ask them to teach according to their contract. You know, we, we've actually got a right at law to do these things. And I, I don't take it that grace means, well, you've got to accept people who will uh, be undermining the uh, ethos and the teaching of the school. Um, if you did that, the, 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 um, the same argument would apply for a, um, uh, for a church to bring in um, a false teacher uh, who would undermine where the church stood on a particular issue. So uh, do you have to be gracious? No, what you need to do is figure out what you stand for and, and stand. You need to be gracious in the way that you do that. Um, now, some Christians will say, well, we think same-sex marriage is fine. Um, of course, of course some Christians are saying that. And, and I would say they should have the right to set up schools that teach that belief and they should be able to insist that their teachers um, stick with that belief. Um, but what you what it would be unworkable would be if every um, uh, member of a faith-based organisation, be it a church or school or welfare agency, had a kind of claim against that agency so that they have to do whatever their individual wants. Because then you'll, it will just be, well, every teacher decides what the school's stand is on anything. How, how That will not work. Um, so, yeah, look, I think we just need to be wary of the um, em emotional power of a word like grace. Grace is very important theologically. and We've got to, got to think carefully about how it intersects with the law of the land um, and not confuse it with the way that grace intersects with legalism in the New Testament. They're two very different things. Did you want to ask something on that same point, or we'll move on? Yeah. Okay. I guess a, I'm not sure whether that satisfies the person who asked the question. Happy to take it up later uh, with anyone. But uh, yeah, have a role, uh, or, or now, <laughs> if they would prefer. Yeah. Not usually. Just. <laughs> I mean, if you're not happy, feel free to send a follow-up. Um, we can we can take that on. Um, or fruit vegetables. I've got a, a question here that's come in, uh, which kind of talks about it, asking for examples of how this has played out in other uh, Western countries, and perhaps. Uh, so, what have been some of the implications of restrictions on religious freedoms in comparable Western countries like Canada, for example? Have Christians been jailed or fined for discrimination? What are we possibly facing if extreme legislative changes take place in Australia? Yeah, I don't. I, I, I think jailing's unlikely. Um, quickest way to get to jail is contempt of court and you know if you if you um, refuse to do what a court says then maybe but mostly it's been uh, areas like um, uh, professional accreditation uh, so there was a, a social worker in the UK who was kicked out of his uh, course uh, because he, his conservative beliefs around marriage and uh, thought that he won't be able to um, act as a social worker 
uh, and help clients who might themselves be in a same-sex marriage if he held beliefs like that. Now, to their credit, some of the gay activists in the UK said that was outrageous and that um, they, they came to his aid. They could see that was absolutely overreach, that a person's able to hold things with conviction and yet still carry out professional responsibilities. But th those issues have come up um, and are coming up in Australia. This is not a one day this could happen. This is I'm talking to two people today who are affected by this in Victoria. Um, there was a, a Christian uh, liberal arts college in uh, Canada, uh, Trinity Western University, who had a, a law school and a requirement that its uh, faculty and students sign a kind of pledge of faith that say that um, they'd abide by um, uh, Christian beliefs while they were there. And um, uh, there was a move to have the entire law school kind of deregistered. Uh, it'd be the equivalent of a, a Notre Dame University in the Catholic scene in Sydney. Um, we don't quite ha have quite a Protestant example here, um, but if you if you think of a, a, uh, a faith-based kind of university uh, being told, well, you can no longer have um, graduates in professional areas because they are not going to be able to um, uh, uh, practice uh, because our profession is now committed to these beliefs which are at odds with yours. Um, that, that's a real issue. Another question, then I'll hand over to Keith. Thanks, Michael. Uh, we've got a question. In the early church, there wasn't any legal protections for their faith. So why should Christians fight for these freedoms today when the early church survived and flourished? Um, yeah, and the church is flourishing in North Korea. Uh, in, among the prisoners there, um, the church is booming. Uh, there might be 100,000 people there who are locked up for their faith and the um, gospel's going forth, right? And so we can't just say, well, you know, therefore, let's replicate the political system of North Korea. That's the way to see the church grow. No, the church grows as the word of God goes out. And as the word of God goes out, uh, then it runs up against people who want to shut it down. Um, that's exactly what happened in Acts. So the first place where you see this conflict uh, taking place for the early disciples, Acts 4, we see Peter and John being told, you know, get back to the upper room. Speak no more in uh, Christ's name. Um, and their response was one of civil disobedience. So they said, well, you know, you say that, judge for yourselves whether it's better to obey God or you. And so right from the start, they have a sense that yeah, the law says one thing, but we've actually got a higher, different duty to God. And so Christians, right from the start, because of the gospel and their, their need to take the gospel out, have done politics and law differently. They Notice that in Acts 4, they don't apply to religious freedom. We have a right to religious freedom. There was no such thing. In fact, the Romans didn't even have a language of religious freedom. It didn't exist. The Christians gave it to them. So Tertullian, 3rd century, uh, Christian... Uh, second century Christian apologist uh, is the first one to coin the phrase uh, religious freedom. Um, don't think of it as some 17th century French invention. It was a Christian gift to the world uh, because of Christian convictions that people were supposed to have freedom uh, to uh, worship God, that it wasn't supposed to be something which was compelled. Remarkably, Tertullian says that 
um, not with a Christian emperor or anything like that, but at the time when there wasn't, when the church was facing persecution. And he, he says it not even just for Christians, but for others as well. He says, let people worship bulls and clouds and goats and whatever they want to worship. And as for us, we will worship um, the risen Lord. So, um, uh, yeah, look, I don't... I, I, the reason to be um, passionate for religious freedom isn't to um, uh, bring about the kingdom of God. Uh, God's spirit does that. God's word does that. Uh, but the context in which that happens, I think there are implications for freedom and politics and law. Yeah. Uh, Michael, they've been fairly broad, and there's still a couple of good, if you like, philosophical, theological questions. So this one's much more specific. Uh, what are the specific issues the centre may need to address in comparison to an ordinary church yeah. in terms of things like staffing or even freedom to share Jesus to the exclusion of other faiths on the property? I guess this is in terms of the draft uh, bill. So, yeah, what would be your sense? There's real problems. I have no idea how the law would work here. And I think what you kind of need to do while it's in draft stage is say, this law will not work here. Can you see how unworkable it will be? Um, because basically it says that once you're into that commercial space, then you need to just operate commercially. You can't discriminate against people on the basis of religion. You can't positively prefer Christians at all. You can within the church for staffing, but not in the commercial aspects. But if it's the one, I don't know how you structure it, but if, you, if it's the one body, corporate body, I don't know how you could possibly do that. But the, the point is that you're not alone. Uh, I was at a mosque in um, Padstow a couple of weeks ago, and they've got a big uh, gym and a youth group and... Um, gaming rooms, and it's a real community centre, and people come in and use it. I mean, there are parallels between what they're doing there and what you're doing here, um, and they are seeing the problems as well. And they're saying, "Well, we don't want to lose our right to have Muslim staff in that position." So I think um, it's very important. It's, you've got you, your local member here has got a good track record on religious freedom, but. It'd be great to give him the stories of um, why this won't work because he's going to be one of the really important voices in the Liberal Party room as they figure out what they should do. So we're trying to say to them, here are the problems to be solved. And almost in a similar vein, a question here about uh, how would this uh, draft bill affect Christian schools? Uh, it tries to cover them, but the drafting got it as doesn't do it. The, the, the way they've written it, means that you can have uh, all the staff can be Christian if that's your policy. So if your policy is we only have Christian staff and that's all you do, that's fine. Um, what it doesn't do is say, well, what if you've got 70% or 50%? And the practice of most schools is even if they want all Christian staff, they can't get it. And once you start saying, well, no, actually, we did have the geography teacher uh, come in because... We had a maternity situation to cover and we couldn't find a Christian and, and then all of a sudden you say, well, it can't actually be a requirement then for the person to be Christian because you haven't done that. Uh, and so um, uh, the, the drafting intent is good. They want to cover Christian schools, but the way they've done it fails and needs to be fixed. Um, it's, a, it's a real problem. 
Is giving offence still a test of discrimination? Um, yeah, they've. Uh, I'm, I can't give legal advice. Uh, uh, and offence is about the trickiest thing to figure out because it varies so much from state to state. But this law deals with it as well. I mean, they've, what they've tried to do is cover the, the Falau uh, situation and they've tried to make it more than just um, giving offence um, uh, and, and say it's things like inciting hatred and uh, causing harm. Um, vilifying, uh, but they haven't defined each of those terms. They've kind of left it to previous cases. And the problem is there isn't really a lot of case law on some of those terms, so we don't really know what vilify means. The lawyers can have arguments amongst themselves, but until it's tested in court, we, we just won't know. Yeah. No, thanks. New question. Um, does Freedom for Faith expect to support this pending support this pending law if suitable amendments can be negotiated as a better option or is Freedom for Faith proposing to oppose this law in favour of the current lack within the law? Uh, it's That's a good question and we're, we're going to be public on what we're doing hopefully in the next couple of days. Um, it's it's a board decision to make and it's not mine uh, to make so I, I can't yet speak for them. I'm waiting for them but you can hear from what I'm saying that if it's in its current form we would be saying to people that you, you really um, shouldn't be uh, accepting this as good enough and that it will cause real problems. If the things that we've identified get uh, fixed, then probably we're, we're describing something which is a good and welcome first step. Concerning the theological theme of justice, changing a little bit. Although the Old Testament prophets were strong on justice concerning the nation of Israel, why is the church so concerned when it happens that the Messiah, when he comes, is to establish justice and righteousness in the messianic reign? So I'm just struggling with the question that why... Yeah. So there's why an Old, Old Testament expectation that the Messiah will bring justice. Yes. So, and with the coming Messiah, there's a, a prophetic promise that he would. I'm just trying to interpret yep. it now a little bit clearer. Um, that he would bring in mm -hmm. um, justice and righteousness. So, is that our concern as the church? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or is that more of Christ when he returns? Yeah. Uh, the answer is yes. Right. Uh, in in and it always is with eschatology. Right. So, yet the kingdom is coming and not yet. So we pray for the kingdom to come. Um, and we long for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. And so um, that will mean that the early Christians in Rome saw that the uh, neighbours were abandoning their newborn infants to die on the rubbish tips of Rome, and they would pick them up. Um, they weren't waiting for the kingdom of God for justice to appear. They were starting to live it out uh, because they were told to love God and love their neighbour. So they did. Uh, and last week, we saw Christians standing up um, for children that were going to be aborted. And it's because we know that justice will come finally, um, but we're told to love our neighbours and care for them now. And so that's what's happening. No? Yeah. Uh, that's really helpful. And I, and I guess some people may have different emphasis in their theological understandings of how much now and how much not yet. 
with, with the coming of the kingdom. But I think that may, that I think you've answered that really well. Uh, another question, and feel free to throw in a few more because we, we've, we're pretty much um, covered um, so far what has well, come in. sold all that's great. Yeah. So we, we, we might ask a little bit practically of how we can get involved in a, in a moment or what, what, what role do, can we from here as we leave tonight. So I'll flag that one. But um, this one's about um, counselling. So there's been a recommendation to criminalise counselling. How does this affect Christian counselling? assume that's talking about um, the Victorian laws on um, uh, so I'm just mentally lost. Someone help me with what the name of it is? Yeah, it's not reprogrammed but it's close. Yeah. It was on 60 Minutes on Sunday. Conversion therapy, thank you. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, in Victoria, there's there's moves to ban uh, conversion therapy. Um, uh, and the conversion there is that the the thought that someone um, uh, who is confused in terms of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity comes to a Christian counselor, say, for help, and saying, look, I. Um, uh, want to see this resolved, and, and then there's questions, and, and there's been some history in, in the states of you know electric shock treatment and some things taking place like that. It's worth the the history on this is actually more interesting than is often told in that a lot of the um, treatment like that was not coming out of Christian counselling at all, but it's actually coming out of secular counselling. And just as lobotomies and so on were common. Um, so too was um, electric shock tra uh, treatment for people with same-sex attraction, uh, which was still, um, uh, until recently, for the American Psychological Association, actually a, uh, something to be kind of treated and cured. So, look, I'm wary to give a, a quick uh, take uh, answer on that, but um, th that kind of stuff, it just, it's not being done. Um, in Australia, and so the the legislation, I think, is a, um, a cure that that you know for a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, I think. I think historically, you can point to that, but it's not exclusively within the church. Um, uh, more dangerous, I think, is the is loosely worded legislation that uses horror stories like that of the past um, to say, well, any kind of um, counselling that doesn't simply affirm a person uh, in their uh, thoughts around uh, gender and uh, gender identity and sexual orientation, then that also must be banned. Um, the latest um, uh, psychology uh, journal, um, I've forgotten the name of it, but we just shared it on our Facebook page tonight, um, picks up a recommendation like this and says, look, the law needs to look more and more, uh, not just at counsellors, but in the future it needs to look at parents as well who refuse to affirm the child who's um, going through gender transitioning and, um, uh, or refuse, you know, the, uh, the failure to kind of go along with the child is, is the issue. Now, if that, you know, we, we need good 
uh, Christian psychologists giving robust kind of responses to that. And I'm wary to kind of wade in um, on the spot. But one of the things that that article helpfully does is say, what would that look like if we applied it to all kinds of counselling of uh, kids, uh, and they are kids, who feel at odds with their body, uh, with body dysphoria, um, who thought that, you know, that if they had um, uh, eating disorders and so on, um, the last thing you would do for a child in that situation is simply to affirm them. Um, you'd listen to them, you'd pastorally counsel on them, but it would be negligent to just um, uh, affirm them in what they believe. That that would actually be harmful, particularly in an area like this where there's good um, data which shows that there's a, a social contagion kind of factor for gender dysphoria so that um, you, you do get clusters and outbreaks of social groups that, um, you know, suddenly the kids are feeling out, out of step with their body. So we just need to... Um, uh, with this area, I think one of the things we're trying to do is um, give freedom, not just for Christians, but for all people to have a, a space and an ability to, to speak. Because this stuff, really, it's a threat to science because you're starting to make political judgments about um, treatments and saying you've got to go the way of affirmation, even without science to back you. So... Um, yeah, if there's counsellors here or people who are thinking about going into counselling, um, this is going to be an absolute nightmare um, down the track. It'll be, it will be hard for Christians to practise here. And already in Australia, we're having counsellors with actions being brought against them uh, because of the stance they've taken on some of these issues. Michael might be worth just adding too that if you, if that's an area where you have particular concerns, uh, Patrick Parkinson at our recent Freedom for Faith conference de developed uh, provided a very well an outstanding paper about that, and it's on the on the Freedom for Faith website, and you could just click on that on the conference, which was just what two weeks ago now, and uh, yeah, really illuminating. Um, in terms of just trying to heighten our awareness of some of those issues that are coming. Uh, some of us will be aware of it because it might be in our own families for others of us, but it won't be as much. Uh, a good question, Michael, in terms of... I've just got to find it here. Uh, the issue of really in terms of if we're arguing for freedom of religion, uh, what does that mean or how will we see that playing out with religions that have practices and teaches, teachings that are odds with Australian law, such as child marriage, polygamy uh, and those sorts of things? How would you see... Uh, how do you grant freedom yet have appropriate brown boundaries around religious practice? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, every, um, it, it, it's a great question, but the answer is actually pretty simple. That is that religious freedom is not a get-out-of-jail-free get card or you can just ignore the law kind of card. You actually, whatever your faith is, you need to comply with the law of the land, um, particularly around areas like... Um, uh, security, um, child protection, um, criminal law, and so on. So there's nobody, uh, nobody serious uh, who's making any other kind of proposition. So even though those examples come from Islam, uh, uh, and doubtless there would be uh, Muslims in Australia who, who might um, uh, have come from that context overseas or who might want it here, um, that's 
um, uh, not the kind of freedom, certainly that their groups are advocating for, or that we would be advocating for. But I do think that there is a unique place that Christians have here to argue for the beliefs of people who you are convinced are wrong. And I think it's really important that we don't just be seen to be arguing for ourselves and special interests uh, pleading, but to actually say we actually want the freedom of um, uh, Muslims to worship in Australia, um, subject to law, just like us, uh, of uh, Jews, uh, of uh, Hindus, so that they should also be able to have schools and hospitals and, and so on. Um, now, I say that, and I've referenced kind of being in a mosque recently, we work as a Christian organisation with other faiths. And, and we don't do it watering down our faith and saying, well, we basically believe the same thing or the differences don't matter. We actually say we believe different things. That's our starting point. And the question is, how do we live together well? Um, and let me tell you when, you, when you go to a politician and you say, look, I'm here concerned for um, people of another faith, then they lean forward and they listen uh, because it's weird because most political pleading is just done out of self-interest. So what, why would you do that? Why would you be concerned? Um, and the alternative to that really is that you have a government which decides which religions are acceptable and which aren't which is the kind of circumstance you're in when the Baptists were being locked up for being Baptists. You don't want to give the government that kind of power. They don't have it, they don't deserve it, they shouldn't get it. Um, much better for the government to, give, to guarantee freedom and for us to be able to talk across differences uh, and to be able to do that in ways which are well. Now, that, how does that sit against violent Islamic um, jihadist uh, Islam? Um, Again, I don't, I don't want to give short answers to this, but it, it has to, that has to be the way um, forward, we, we would argue. Happy to talk to people more about that if you, if you want to afterwards. But, yeah. And then uh, coming back a bit more specifically to the proposed bill, the question is put is what's the point of having a new bill or law to protect the religious freedoms and not just why don't we just add to or modify the broader anti-discrimination laws? Yes, you could, you, could, you could go different ways. There are different ways you could skin this cat. They've tried to do it in a way which just makes it look like um, other anti-discrimination laws. Those anti-discrimination laws do kind of stand alone. So you've got gender discrimination law, you've got age discrimination law, rather than everything being caught up at a common level. And so they've just tried to match that. And one very close to home, there's a church that meets on Sunday afternoons just down the road here at Kenthurst called Kenthurst United. Well, it's in the Kenthurst United Church building and there's a fellow there called Flau who worships there. The, this question but says, what lessons can Christians learn from that case, do you think? And you've got uh, two minutes to answer that. <laughs> well... Um Let me, let me not answer that question and, and talk about Falau then for a minute and 45. Uh, 
Falau has changed. Yeah, but the World Cup this starts this weekend, and um, yeah, it, 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 I wish he was playing. Uh, um, Falau changed the politics of this whole issue. So, as much as both sides of politics want this to disappear, and they don't want cultural war 3.0, Falau seemed to have this remarkable ability to just keep going back on the front page. And every time it kind of slowed down, um, Peter Fitzsimons would fan it back up, and um, or someone, or Alan Jones, or someone else would, and he'd be back on the front page. And politicians on both sides would, what about Falau? And so, as much as we've um, tried to put religious freedom in the on the political agenda for people, we could never have done what Falau did uh, in doing that. Like, um, uh, if, if we had a, if we had a I don't know what the budget would be to try and get people talking about religious freedom like they have over the last year. He's done it. Right? Um, um, the people are going to differ as to uh, whether he should have said what he said, how he should have said it, um, uh, what he should have done afterwards, what Rugby Australia should have done and so on, what the law says. I think the current law is actually going to protect him, but we'll wait and see what the court does. I don't think it's actually going to be a huge thing that will change the law. I'd be very surprised if it is. Um, uh, the laws of parliament are far more significant for Australian law than the judicial decisions generally. And I think that'll be the case here, that what happens with these bills is actually far more important than Falau. But Falau has changed the politics around these bills um, in, in helpful kind of ways. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I would be praying for him. Uh, he's certainly been under pressure. I know there have been real questions raised about his faith and where he stands and so on. Pray for him. You know, he's, he, he certainly came from a background of Mormon faith. and um, So pray for him and uh, pray for his uh, community and uh, pray that good will come out of what's happened. Andrew, unless we've got any more, I think we've just got one last question, just to keep faith with everyone who's uh, sent us a question, and uh, thank you for them. This last one just really comes back, I guess, to the question of how we equate one freedom against another, but the question says, is, Michael, at what point is my religious freedom more important than another person's perceived persecution? Well, you might say perceived discrimination. Uh, the, yeah, look, the... I was preaching on Exodus a couple of weeks ago and as I was doing that, I was, I was reading the, um, the law from Moses and what it said and the more you looked at it, the more you meditated on it, the more beautiful it was, the more it spoke about the, the need to care for the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan and, and you could go back over a lifetime and look at that law and see how good it is, how it shows you how society is to be structured, um, how it'll live, how it also condemns you, that you can't actually do the things which are there. And I found that out with a golden calf, you know, almost straight away. And so that there's, there's a beauty to God's law um, that isn't always matched when you come to Australian law. <laughs> so you come to Australian law and you look at these bills and you see, well, it recognises one right over here for this group and one right over here for another group. And it has a really hard time 
figuring out how to reconcile those competing rights and perceptions of persecution um, are deeply felt and um, people's uh, uh, rights around you know, uh, who they are are not expressed as well as they could be in Australian law and are subject to flux and change and it's a very human stab at trying to do justice. And so if we're to be a culture that moves away from uh, God's law as a way for working out good uh, ordering of society and we go more to a place where it's about my rights, I think we should expect there to be more conflict between different groups who appeal to the rights that they have and having less sympathy for the rights of others because there's no necessary uh, underlying coherence to how those two rights relate. Um, I don't know if that helps, but it's, it's messy and um, it's going to be a very different kind of uh, legal, cultural environment that our kids are growing up in than what we've experienced. Um, it's really interesting times to see how God's going to work um, as that takes place. Well, thank you, Michael. We, um, we have got a clock here at the front. You'll be pleased to know that we've been watching and we're getting close to getting on towards nine. So, Andrew, you wanted to make some comment, I think, at the beginning. You preferenced the idea of there's some practical things we might want to do. So if I give you back this microphone. Yeah, I think just what, what would it look like for us... Um, what would be your advice to engage with this, to read into this, how we can um, take our thoughts and feelings, convictions around God's word um, and then engage with this on a local, state and national level? Okay, the most strategic thing you can do is pray. Okay? Uh, and so pray. Pray for this. You know, as you, as you see it in the news, then, then pray. Bring it before God. Um, there's nothing more important that, God, that God's people can do. And to be doing that corporately uh, in your church is a really significant thing. As you do that, I think that finds natural expression in some people who particularly feel called to um, speak up on these issues. There'll be other issues which will drive others, and that's okay. I'm not saying this is the issue which must, must grab everyone. But I'm, I'm guessing there's people here tonight that say, you know, this is something actually I should be throwing myself into a bit, and I can be a bit of a point of contact for others. And this can be my little ethical hobby, almost, that I take up and I can serve others. And we're certainly willing to resource anyone who's interested in that kind of space. And so you could uh, like us on Facebook tonight. Um, Facebook, we're trying to push good resources out daily. Um, the website, there's a sign-up sheet as well. We've got sign-up things over there. But uh, at a local level, uh, there is a remarkable amount which, which can be done. Um, uh, I think sometimes we misunderstand um, politics and the law because we have it. We're, we're told what the story of it is by the media, and I'm, this is not the media is evil spiel. Right? The media is under-resourced. Um, the media is under-representative of Christians. Um, politicians are over-represented with people of faith. Um, and so 
don't believe everything you're kind of seeing in the media and certainly don't believe that there's just this inevitable progress away from Christianity towards some utopian future that can just ignore faith. Um, what we've seen around um, the abortion bill, uh, I think, um, although that probably hasn't stopped that, I think has completely changed the way that uh, euthanasia will be treated in New South Wales. Maybe I should come back next week and find out. Or next time. Um, uh, because people have got engaged, because people have actually just picked up the phone and spoke to their local member. Um, and it's not hard to do. Like, if you make an appointment with a GP, you, anyone done that? Made an appointment with your GP? Yeah. So you pick up the phone and ask for an appointment. It's like that with your MP, honestly. You say, I'd like, I'm a local constituent, I'd like to meet, I'd like to talk about this. You don't have to be the expert, you don't have to have the answers. You just have to say, look, I'm I'm a voter and I, you know, we've got this group here, we've got this men's shed that does these wonderful things and yet this bill comes and I don't know how you're going to fix that. And they count these things and they number these things and in politics in Australia the simple adage is you're either um, at the table or on the menu, you know. And so you can be on the menu if you just be silent but you you can be at the table. And that's not saying let's be really abusive and militant. It's like saying let's take seriously our responsibility in praying for um, leaders, in working for freedom, in acting as good citizens who love our neighbours. That'll mean we'll, we'll actually need to you know, pick up the phone and make that appointment. Just to make us aware, the New South Wales and ASIC Baptist Association will be mailing out uh, probably tomorrow or on uh, Friday uh, a, a note to, it'll come to church officers and pastors, which will just give some indication if you if there's concerns about this. And it points out some of the things that Michael's referenced tonight uh, to encourage individuals and churches to complete... Uh, uh, the, the Attorney General Department has actually laid out a kind of a pro forma which makes it easier to make a submission. And in fact, the advice is they're not asking us as people who are in depth with the legal background, but rather just say we're concerned because this is how we think this might affect us and we'd like your assurance that it won't affect us in that way. The Prime Minister made the promise a couple of weeks, well, a couple of months ago now, he said that this, this uh, uh, Discrimination Act will not in any way take away from what we presently have as people of faith. And yet what is clear is whether it's just poor wording or whether it's actually intentional, there are some impacts like the impact on our capacity here at the centre to employ who we want to in the centre uh, with people who have uh, alike values, if you like. So I guess they're, they're the things we need to think about individually and maybe the church leadership might think about something as well. Uh, it's it's not a long window of opportunity. I think it all closes on the 2nd of October. But that'll be something... And I guess that'll be probably put in the newsletter on Sunday so people will know. If you're interested, but if you go to the Attorney General's... Or if you just, just Google in uh, Religious Discrimination Act, you'll find that information there on the Attorney General's website. So they're practical things we can do over this issue if, as Michael says, if you sat down and said, yeah, I need to do something about that. I think it's fair to say, I think we've got two late questions, but we'll have to save those up for the next time Michael comes back, <laughs> or else Michael's happy to talk to you personally now anyway. But we need to be fair to people who've got early starts tomorrow, maybe, to say uh, thank you. So I'll hand it back to my colleague to wrap it up for us. Yeah. 
No, thank you. Thank you. We might just um, pray for, for you, Michael, uh, and also all of us as we, we continue to press into this. So, yeah, please pray with us. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your servant, uh, Michael, who, who has um, yeah, shared his wisdom, uh, his, his studies, his experiences, uh, his heart and his family with us tonight. Uh, we thank you for his candor and, and we thank you that he's here with us. Um, we really um, we pray for his work with Freedom for Faith. Uh, we, we pray as you use him to um, yeah, stir conversations, stir people's convictions and, and stir people to the truth of the gospel, uh, to the truth of Jesus' name uh, and all that he brought to this earth, um, all that he paid for us. I uh, pray that you would um, guide us as a, a church family with what we've received tonight. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the call for us to be as gentle as doves, but also as, as shrewd as snakes, um, that we would be um, listening, uh, discerning and praying, uh, that we would pray without ceasing. Uh, we would continue to walk in faith and hope and, and not be put off by what we see, but continue to believe that, that God can work through um, us as, as God's people, us as the church, uh, but also to walk through this um, in, in absolute grace uh, and in um, listening to others um, from all religions, all faith, um, all ends of the spectrum and, and, and doing that in a way that honours God, honours his kingdom and honours every single person created in your image. Uh, so would you stir us tonight to consider um, the last and the least and, and those in every part of our nation? Uh, and we just pray for, for Michael uh, as we, we send him out to continue to serve you. Uh, and God, we thank you that you um, are with us and you're working through each one of us and you've given each one of us um, a character uh, inside of us, gifts and a voice. So Lord, would you um, use us as your instrument? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, yeah, let's, let's give Michael a thanks. Give him a round of applause. Um, really great to have you here. Welcome back anytime. And uh, for everyone else, we'll be back here next week. Uh, feel free to grab um, Keith or Michael now. I'm sure Michael will be heading off soon, but I'm sure you can grab for a few moments. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. <laughs>